0: You know, we're brand new, in a sense, here at the church. We're not new in that God has been at work here for a long time, bringing people together, and the church is people, right? So this is a new local expression of God's work in the church here in this area, but we're not new in some senses. God's been doing this for a long, long time, and yet, with being a new ministry or a new church, particularly after last week, people are curious what we're all about as a church. And uh, even this morning I had somebody stop me and say, "Hey, could I come by the office? I just want to find out what you guys are all about as a church." And that's a legitimate question. That's the right question to be asking. What are our goals? What are our desires? What what is the direction that we plan to focus our ministry after what is the way that we are following? And we stand really young guys in a young church with a very old way of doing things. And we stand in the heritage of churches for centuries that have followed after the mission of the master of the church to take the gospel to the world around us. So we are an evangelical church. That means that we are bearers of the good news. We proclaim the evangelistic message of the gospel. So if you hear the word evangelical, we are an evangelical church. We are pursuing the Great Commission that we studied last Sunday morning. We are pursuing that as our highest priority as a ministry is to take the Gospel to the world around us. If we, if we existed sheerly for fellowship, for knowledge, for worship, and that was all that we were here for, then we should be in heaven, right? We'd have nothing else to do. We could do a lot better learning in heaven, We could do a lot better worship if we were in God's presence, but we're here for another reason, and that is after we've worshiped, after we've learned, after we've encouraged and fellowship with one another, we are to go out and carry on our mission in the community around us. So it's our desire to be an evangelistic church, a group of people that are committed to taking the gospel to those that need it, those who are lost who are without hope in Christ. Now, we find our hearts convicted when it comes to personal and corporate evangelism, right? I mean, there's a couple things in the Christian life that we could just... It's instant conviction for us, and probably personal evangelism is on my top two. So if there's an area where we struggle, where we feel like I should be doing more, I should be more bold, I should be more consistent... I should be more creative in how I go about finding folks to share the good news with. If that is convicting, there's nothing that heightens the conviction more than talking about prayer and specifically evangelistic prayer. Prayer and evangelism are really the lifeblood habits of the church, and yet they are some of our greatest struggles. And we come to First Timothy chapter two tonight, we're We've concluded chapter 1, we've looked at the error that they're struggling with in the Ephesian church where Timothy is the pastor, and we come now to chapter 2, and really Paul turns his attention, he turns his focus on what positively the church is to be all about. What is to be the focus of the church? How is it to come together corporately? What is to mark it out as it gathers together? What are to be the watermarks of what the church is about when it scatters from its gathering into the community? So understand that these are not specific or personal instructions, though we're given these instructions elsewhere personally. These are corporate instructions. These are for us as a group to say, are we where we should be? Are we following the path we should be following? Are we going the right direction? Are these things consistent with our focus and our desire and our pursuit as a local church. Paul marks this out in verse 1, and we'll read all the way down through verse 7, just to give you curiosity, and then we'll just focus on verses 1 and 2 for our time together. Let's read them together, verses 1 to 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight we're just going to examine the first two verses and we're really going to look at the call to evangelistic prayer as a corporate ministry of the church. This is a convicting section. It has some sticky issues in it. And the passage to follow is also difficult for us sometimes to follow theologically. And I look forward to studying this with you guys on Sunday evenings. But tonight, we're just going to focus in on the call on our lives as a church to be about prayer. Paul sets prayer as the priority in verse 1 by calling out, First of all, this isn't the first thing he said. This isn't a switch in chapters. I'm sorry, but there is a sneeze that will happen, and it will rock your world, let me tell you. And I'm trying desperately to fight it off. If it happens, you'll know that it happened. My wife can attest. Chapter 2 is not wrong in its placement. It's not supposed to be chapter 1. Yeah, I'm just, ah, wow, Now, I don't want to look at the light. You don't know what will happen if I look at the light. (laughs) I do. The explosion that we call sneezes in my family is something that I would hope to shield you from, no pun intended, for uh, as long as I can. All right, it's passing. First of all, of priority. First in priority, Chapter 2, if we're going to talk about what we're to be about as a corporate body... Paul has outlined for us that priority. And the urge that Paul gives with his heart, he desires, he urges that prayer be the mark of the church, the first priority of the church. Then, in verse 1, also points us backwards. It's the same word, the same concept that we would find when we come to the word therefore. It connects us to the previous paragraph and to the context. And you'll remember that last week we studied the charge that was entrusted to Timothy. He was reminded that he was to be defending and fighting for the Gospel and for its clarity. And it's almost as if the error that was marked out in the Ephesian church was calling people to an an exclusive, ingrown mentality in the local church. They were, the teachers that were deceiving the church, were attempting to be experts in the law. They were examining myths and genealogies. They were studying any number of endless details as teaching, which creates a sect of people who have private knowledge. They have private information. They're the only ones who know the myths. They're the only ones who really know the true meaning of the genealogies. And the effect that that was having on the Ephesian church was that the church was becoming... It was becoming exclusive. It was becoming its own little sect within the body of Christ. And so Paul counters that mentality. He counters it right on the spot in verse 1 of chapter 2. They are not to be all about their little group. We are not to be all about our community or our little group of people. There is to be a wide Wide concern that marks the church and the prayer life of the Church of Christ. And so first of all, or place it in the primary place when it comes to corporate worship, here is what we are to be about. And there's four terms for prayer that you see in your Bible, and I've already done genealogy this morning, I guess I'm on a roll with lists. Lists are difficult to preach and teach because we get lost in them, and they lose their effect especially when three out of the four in the list are synonyms. So you, like me, have looked at these words and thought, what's the difference between supplication, prayer, and intercession? Aren't those all the same thing? Aren't those just different words for the same activity? And in a sense, yes, those are Greek synonyms as well as English ones. They are carrying the same idea. They have the same audience. Right? They're not any different. They're all prayer to God, and yet there is some nuance, there is some detail to each of them that calls them out and gives us a particular facet of the prayer that we are to be making for all people. Here's the first one, supplication. Prayer for what is lacking in the lost. Supplication has within it the idea of a known need that is brought before one who can provide for that need. So to go before a king and make a supplication was to say, King, we're in desperate need of your financial aid. Would you grant us financial help? It was to make a supplication. It's a term that goes across theological and secular lines. It's not just to God. Supplication can be made to anyone. You make supplication each time you order food at a restaurant. You are asking for a need to be met by someone who can provide for that need. I would like to have this. Supplication is a little different because, than prayer, because prayer is always the word used for prayer is always centered on God as the audience. So prayer marks us not just in the idea of supplication, but we are coming as worshipers of God into His presence, and we are, we are bringing our supplications to Him in prayer. And then the third synonym. And these are fine distinctions, I understand. The third synonym is intercessions. And intercessions holds with it the idea of experiential knowledge of someone else's need. So intercession is coming to one who can meet the need on the behalf of someone in need. So intercession is when we pray for one another, we understand that there's a need within our body. We offer that up to the Lord We are making intercession on behalf of someone else to the one who can meet the need. And then the icing on all the cake, no matter which way you slice it, is that Thanksgiving is to be a part of prayer. So we're always to be, gratitude should always mark prayer within our corporate assembly. We can only be grateful. We can only be marked by Thanksgiving in our prayers as we have a clear view of who God is and what he's accomplishing. That's why we spend so much time in our Scripture reading and in our pastoral prayers in focusing our minds back in prayer, reciting to God who He is. Because when we see Him for who He is, we are in awe of who He is and of His grace in condescending to us, and our gratitude flows out of us. How could we be anything but grateful when we know that we're praying to one who can meet every need, who has known us, before we were even born, who is the sovereign and the good God of the universe. Now, we could just focus in on prayer and say, let's talk about supplications, let's talk about prayers, let's talk about intercessions and thanksgiving, and I think we would still be missing the big point of what's happening here. In the corporate life of the church, we are to be praying for all people this way. All people. Not all people in the church. This is broader than the church. This is all people. As in universal prayers. Universal supplications. Universal intercessions. And all of that universal prayer is to be matched with grateful hearts and thanksgiving to the Lord. Now, this is something that probably pushes us a little bit. But we... Little Grace Church in Kingsburg. Grace Church of the Valley. That's pretty broad for the area, right? We picked the valley. We tried. We could have said, you know, Grace Church of the World, but that would have been stretching it just a little bit. Or California. We're the Grace Church of California. Little Grace Church of the Valley meeting in a high school in Kingsburg is to be praying for all people. It is to have a world vision. God's work is way bigger than us. And so as we pray, we're to be praying for all people. We're to be praying globally. We're to be praying universally. You say, well, how do I make supplications for all people? How do I intercede for all people? How do I make prayers before the Lord with thanksgiving for all people? Paul's particular point in encouraging Timothy here is to pray specifically for the greatest need of all people, which is what? That's right. We're to be praying for the furtherance of the Gospel, for the salvation of sinful people across the face of the earth. So we start broad, and we start big, as the definitive priority of the church in its mission, and that is to be praying evangelistically for everybody. We narrow just a little to help us focus on the practical application of that. Now, it's easy for us to say, Lord, we desire, and we do desire, for you to bring the Gospel to bear on all people. We desire for men everywhere, of every race, of every nation, of every tongue, to be saved to the glory of your name. Would you use us in some way? We pray this way. It's a little different when we have to pray evangelistically, for actually those who are over us. And so the funnel gets a little tighter in verse 2 at the beginning in explaining who it is that we're praying for, who is included in the all people. Let's be a little bit more specific. The call for a corporate prayer is right off the bat in verse 1. In verse 1, with all people and into 2, which we'll see in just a second, gives us the second segment of this, not only the call, but the objects of the corporate prayer. So who are the objects? Who are we to be praying for? And specifically, in this case, Paul defines all people in this way, for kings and all who are in high positions. All people. Particularly, he focuses on kings and those who are in authority over God's people in a civil sense. So we are praying... Evangelistically, we are praying for the Gospels, speedy work across the world, and we are particularly praying that God would work in those who are over us, kings and those who are in high positions. There is no segment of the all people that is more difficult to pray for than the government that is over us. Right? In fact, we're in some of the easier time of praying for our government because at this point, our highest leader makes a clear profession of faith in Christ. And so we don't know him personally, at least I don't know him personally. But it's easier to pray for someone who has some character and who has some credential and who professes faith in our Lord, our Christ, who has some moral bearing to his existence. The point is is that we are praying for all government officials over us, kings, and everyone under them is really what's described by all who are in high positions. Kings and those delegated to authority by the kings. Now, you know enough about Bible history to know who the Ephesian church would be praying for. Who were they to be, supplications, prayers, and intercessions, who were they to be offering those up for? Anybody? Particularly who? One guy. Rome burned. Nero. That's right. Nero would have been their ruler at this point. You say, well, shouldn't they have been praying imprecatory prayers against Nero? God crush his teeth, break them out. You know, the prayers of the psalmist. Absolutely. Nero was a wicked man. In one sense, we desire to see God's justice vindicated. We desire to see His holiness displayed. And yet, we are called as a church to be praying for those who are over us. And the prayer is the prayer for their salvation and for their success temporally. The church is to be praying for the government. Now, here's what drives us to actually know that we can pray for the government. Go over to Romans 13 and let's just do a little cross-referencing just for the sake of making sure we are viewing this in the right way. Romans 13 tells us the purpose of the government that's over us. Let every person... Here's our responsibility to the government. We're in the second half, or the concluding half of Romans. Chapters 12 to 16 are the implications of what chapters 11 back through 1 teach us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities... For there is no authority except from God, so they come directly from God's hand, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So he put them in the place that they were there. God put Bill Clinton in charge of our country for however many years he was in charge of our country, which are a blur. God ordained and put George W. Bush in charge of our country. We need to have that mentality when we come to our submission and to our prayer for them. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment upon themselves. Another passage over in Second Peter. I'm sorry, First Peter. At the end of our Bibles, there gets lost in the shuffle a lot of times. The epistles from Peter. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as aliens and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You're not to be like the people who don't know the Lord. Keep your conduct, amend the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And here is the conclusion in Peter's epistle, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So in other words, we are to be mindful of the fact that God has ordained and He has a definite purpose for those who are over us in government. And as a church, we are to be praying evangelistically for all people, and we are to be praying specifically for those who are in authority over us. We spent a few moments several weeks ago, I believe, on Wednesday night in our prayer meeting, just praying for those officials that we could think of, elected officials in our community, our sheriff, Our governor, the governator, we need to be praying for his salvation. Not just laughing at him, but praying for him and for his leadership because he is ordained by God. So the object, the specific object of our corporate prayer evangelistically is all people and it boils down particularly to those who are in authority over us. Now this particular prayer for those who are in authority over us has massive implications on our lives. So I ask you first, are we a praying church and are we global and universal in our prayer? Are we a praying people or do we have an exclusive claim to the good news? There is a temptation in churches like ours to get this idea that we know it, we get it, we're on top of it, and no one else is. We're the only people doing this We're in our little shell. There's no one else out there who's actually all about the Gospel of Jesus Christ when in fact there are millions of people who are a part of the kingdom purposes of God. Are we global in our perspective? Are we global in the reach of the Gospel in our prayers? Or are we becoming exclusive and ingrown in our concept? If we pray for all people, our prayer has a direct influence on our lives with those people, and particularly with the government. If we pray for our government, for our officials, for those who are over us, and you can only imagine the Ephesian church listening to Timothy tell them that they need to pray for Nero, that he would have good success, that God would grant him wisdom, that he would carry on God's ordained work well, that he would protect people, that he would honor those who are good and, and punish those who are evil. Can you imagine And yet the effect that it would have on their lives is given to us, and that's really the conclusion of our little study tonight, is the result of our corporate prayer is seen in verse 2. Verse 2 says that we may lead a a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is a result. Grammatically, this is a result. So that, here is the outcome of us praying for all people and for kings and all who are in high positions. The effect is on us. We benefit from our prayer life for others. We specifically benefit from our prayer life for those who are over us in leadership in any sense. As we pray for them, as we desire what God desires for them, and we're going to find that next week, as our heart is in line with God's heart for all people and for those particularly in authority over us, yes, even... The traffic cops, as we pray for them, the effect on us is dramatic. We lead a peaceful and a quiet life. Peaceful lives and quiet lives are to be a hallmark of the, of the local church. Peaceful Christianity is a living and vibrant Christianity. And peaceful, when it says a peaceful life, this is an external reality. That is, we are at peace with those around us. We see this elsewhere in the New Testaments, that we're to live peaceably with all men as much as is possible. We're to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're to be persecuted for our holy lives, for our dedication to our Savior. We are not to be persecuted because of how ornery we are with other people, how difficult, how warring we are in personality and approach to others. First result is a peaceful life. The second one is an internal reality, a quiet, settled life. How can we settle our lives and our hearts? How could these precious people, under the tyranny of Nero, have quiet, settled hearts in their Christian walk? One of the ways that that was accomplished was by praying for God's work through those authorities. You're struggling with an authority? Pray for your authority and pray not that his teeth would be shattered with rocks, but pray that God would use him and God would work in his heart and that God would use you to bring the gospel to him, that he might be saved and that he might be rescued for the glory of God. And you'd be amazed how peaceful you can become and how quiet your heart can become and how settled you can be in your existence, even under poor leadership, poor decision making, lack of wisdom ungodliness, all of those things, you can still, as a believer and one who is praying for others, you can live a peaceful and you will live a peaceful and a quiet life. Now, there's no doubt that the life that these folks lived in this time was not peaceful in the sense that we think of peaceful. Let me tell you what this is not saying. If you'll pray for all people, if you'll make it your priority to be about prayer, and if we make it our priority as a corporate body to be about prayer for those who need Christ, that we then will live the American dream. We'll be peaceful. We'll live on quiet streets. We'll have nice homes. Our lives will be quiet and easy. We don't have to say anything. We just pray for them and something happens. They see us out in our yard and they think, I want to be like that guy. What is it? Or we think that, you know what, we just, quiet means I don't have to say anything. If I just go to church every Sunday, then surely they're going to notice us getting in the car. And they'll notice that we have our Bible, and surely their heart will be drawn to say, why do you go somewhere on Sundays, and why do you take your Bible? And then we'll say, I don't know, but you can talk to my pastor. I'll give you his number. (laughs) That's not what quiet life is, and that's silly. I know you don't think that. Okay, maybe we think that a little bit, but it's still silly and it's not appropriate and that's not the message that's given to us here. The effect of prayer and evangelistic prayer of the body is that we as a body will live a peaceful existence. We will be at peace with others. They will bring persecution. If we follow Christ, we can expect it, but it will not be because we went after it and we caused war with other people. It will be because we have stood for the truth, we have lived in righteousness, and the world hates it. They've hated our Savior first. We'll have quiet peace in our existence as a local body and as individuals because we'll know that we are praying and desiring God's thoughts and his desires after him. Now it's further defined what this quiet and peaceful life looks like with these two little words, godly and dignified. Godly and dignified. Godly is a simple word. It's used all through these epistles we use it even now. It's very common to us. All it means is that we, as a, as a character trait, exemplify the nature and the character of the God that we serve. We talked about this this morning. We become reflectors of God's glory. We become reflectors of his character. So what he is about, we are about. You say, well, what is he about? Well, that's what we're going to study next week. But godly people are centered on His mind, on His revelation, on His desires, on His will, and we are praying, Lord, Your will be done on this earth where I am as it is in heaven where You are. Godly and dignified or holy, intentional, is to be the mark of the one who lives a peaceful and quiet life. It's defined by godliness and dignity. Careful living. Careful living will be the goal of those who provide the good news to the world and pray for its effect to be powerful through them. Careful living is to be the defining mark of our existence. That's why the epistles call us to live in light of the Gospel. Our goal is not to overturn our government, squelch the rebellion, put down the revolution that is rising up within Grace Church. That's not what we're to be about or the upheaval of our society. Nor are we called to the American dream of life that is easy, the pursuit of happiness. We are called to the mission of the Gospel, and our prayer life as a ministry must fuel our heart for the lost. And the result will be, the benefit will be, that as we pray, particularly for those who are in authority over us, who need the grace of God, the result will be that our lives will be marked by a peaceful, quiet existence as a church. There's all kinds of speculation about what Paul intended for the original readers to understand. Part of it was the reality that persecution was coming, and it was present. And we don't understand that. We don't grasp that. right? And we, don't, we really don't fear that if we walk out of here tonight, there's a chance that we could all go to jail this evening. That's just not something we've ever thought about. And we praise God for our country that we live in, where we have freedom to meet and gather without concern. But we lose a little bit of the impact of what it is to pray for those who are over us and what it is to live a peaceful and quiet life if we miss the context in which this was originally written. So as you study this this week, as you remind yourself of what we've studied tonight, and you go back and say, God, how can I apply this to my life? You need to be aware that these were folks who were persecuted, these were folks who were under immense turmoil. In fact, in the second letter to Timothy, just a couple pages over in our Bibles, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, "...have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness." God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What is to be the Lord's servant's defining mark? Not quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach or instruct, and patiently enduring evil. If we go over to chapter 3 and verse 12. Just down the page, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Guarantee. Say, how come I'm not being persecuted? There's a good chance that we're not living life in Christ in a way that would bring the confrontation of the gospel to anybody. There is the blessing that we live in a nation that accepts our religious belief, quote unquote. And yet, if we live in light of the Gospel, persecution is promised. It will come. So, as we face the potential of persecution as God's servants, as we face living underneath of governmental leaders who do not know the Lord, but who are instituted by Him, and as we gather as a church to be all about the Great Commission, We must be people of prayer, and we must be a church of prayer, praying for the gospel to go to the globe and praying for God to use the gospel even with those who are over us. And the effect on us, the outcome, the result, is a peaceful and a quiet existence as God's people. Okay? This is important for us. This is very practical. You know, I I usually write out a conclusion questions to ask myself to try to think if we have thought through this appropriately but they're so simple how are we doing with the call to prayer in the first place are we aware of our need to the point where prayer is the only thing that makes sense you know if we don't pray it's directly result it's the direct result of pride right because not praying is saying i don't need i don't i don't have a need that god Alone can meet. I can do okay on my own with this need. And that's a lie, of course. How are we doing with the call to prayer? How are we as a church doing in the call to evangelistic prayer? Are we universal? Or are we becoming myopic or ingrown? Do we feel that prayer for the lost is necessary? If your view of God's sovereignty and salvation removes prayer for the lost, then you have an incorrect view of God's sovereignty and salvation. Because we are called to pray, and God uses our prayers as a means to His end. Will we be a church defined by a God-given mission, or will we pursue any number of other pursuits? If we're about what God wants us to be about, then we need to be about prayer for all people, and especially for prayer of those who watch over us as our authorities. The result will be an existence that's peaceful and quiet. I hope that's an encouraging lesson tonight. I hope that that's an encouraging challenge from Paul to Timothy. It certainly is to me. I think you ought to expect to hear us pray for the world in this church, and you ought to expect to hear us pray for those who are over us corporately as we pray together. So even as uh, an act of obedience tonight, why don't we close our service in praying exactly how we've been commanded to pray as a church, and you join me. You pray as well. This isn't just a listening game. You intercede with the Lord for those who are all over this world in need of the gospel and for those who are over us, and we'll dismiss our time together. Our Father, we are acutely aware of how far We fall from the standard of your word. There is no doubt that at every level we are marked and marred by sin. And yet there are some facets of the Christian life, there are some facets of our existence as your people that seem to be particularly difficult for us. Tonight we have a combination of two of them. Our pursuit of evangelizing the lost, of bringing the good news of the gospel to those who need it, and our responsibility to be praying for the furtherance of your kingdom to all people, to all nations, even to the highest authorities that are over us and over all peoples in this world. And so tonight we commit ourselves as a people, as a group, as a church to be a praying people, to be praying for the furtherance of Your Gospel, knowing that prayer is the means that You have ordained to accomplish Your ends. We desire tonight for Your Gospel and we request for Your Gospel to go to the ends of the earth and to have power. Would You use those who are there sharing the Gospel to the nations, those who are outside of our country, outside of our existence here, to be bright, shining lights to the communities in which they find themselves. And would You break the hearts of many that they might come to faith, repentance, and salvation. We pray for our President this evening. We thank You for him. We thank You that You have placed him over us. We acknowledge that he is Your instrument. You have ordained his work And you have ordained him to do that work. Would you grant him wisdom? Would you guide him that he might accomplish your purposes? May he be faithful and successful in punishing evil and exalting good. Will you use these last days of his term to accomplish your ends through him? And may your Gospel have a full impact on our president and those within His cabinet. We pray for our governor tonight, who watches over our state, gives direction to those who make decisions. We rest in knowing that You have placed him as well. You have even placed our mayor, our city council, our police force, those who protect us from evil, those who punish evil, all have been ordained and placed by You we desire nothing more than to see them accomplish your purpose, and we desire nothing more than to see them do it with a mind that knows and acknowledges the person in the work of Christ. Will you save many? Will you use our church, even as prayer warriors and prayer supporters, to be a part of your kingdom work around the world and even here in our government, in our land? We desire this because You desire it for us. May the result be peaceful, quiet lives that are godly and dignified and bring honor and glory to You. We ask it all in the name of our Savior and for His glory. Amen.